Why are Bible-believing Christians so fidgety and combustible when it comes to issues of sexuality? The phrase fidgety and combustible comes from a Yale professor trying to describe America's Bible-believing Christians. Well, I want you to introduce you to someone that was a bit fidgety and combustible in Matthew 19. He was a bit fidgety and combustible when it came to these issues. And I want us to examine how it is he approached social issues. Uh, There was one uh, research psychologist that did a study of children who fared better through hard times than others who did not. And he found that those children that did fare better through difficult times were children who were introduced to the story of their families. Uh, Parents would tell their children how they met, and they would tell how, uh, where their grandparents came from. And they would go through a family history, and they would tell them stories of the good times and the low times, and how they persevered, and would essentially conclude, we've been through high times, we've been through low times, but here we are, and we're still together. Those children made it through differently and more strong in a marked way over those children that did not know their family history and their family story. Jesus in Matthew 19 deals with the family story. It's what he does. He deals with many elements, significant elements, from Genesis to Revelation in just this one chapter of Matthew 19. And he takes that story from Genesis to Revelation our story, and applies it to significant social issues, which is what we will do today. Now, you know the biblical storyline, do you not? Well, let me introduce it to you if you don't remember. That is, that God created the heavens and the earth as a kingdom for His Son. But our first parents handed over legal right to the earth to a rival, to a traitor, and became traitors with him, and that same tendency is passed down from generation to generation so that all the earth is covered up with people who have betrayed the king because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now this God is a king. He has a court system and laws and sentences, and he has sentenced the whole human race to eternal death. There's death of the spirit where we're separated from God. There's death of the body where the spirit is separated from the body. Then there's death in hell. And there aren't three different kinds of death. There's one death that desperately needs to be interrupted at some point before the physical death. Well, God wasn't satisfied with this because he loves us. He's also a God of love. And in his court system, he allows substitutions. And so he sent a substitute, the only one worthy to be a substitute, and that happened to be the one for whom the kingdom was created, his own son, Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, he was dying in the place of sinners. God demonstrates his own love toward us, the scripture says, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when Jesus hung between heaven and earth and died there, he was suffering our capital punishment as our substitute. Now the Father was so pleased with this and accepted that arrangement that he had actually come up with himself along with Jesus, that he raised Jesus from the dead. And so that one that did all that he did in his time on the earth is alive today. And he walks with this people. And he heals uh, their souls and their minds. One day will heal their bodies and forgives their sin and leads his church as a victorious king and as a victorious Lord. 
And to get this news around the world, he established embassies around the world. Every nation does that, at least the significant ones. And he's put embassies all over the world, and we call these churches. And he has staffed them with a staff of ambassadors or diplomats, and they go amongst the traitors, and that's you and me, and they go amongst the traitors and they say, your king loves you, but the sentence of death hangs over your head. Your king loves you, and he's willing to reconcile and make peace with you if you will bow the knee to the king. Leave your current kingdom of darkness and trust his grace demonstrated on the cross and resurrection. And if you will, he will cancel the debt against you. He will bring you into his kingdom. And not only that, but he'll adopt you. He'll make you his own. And so instantaneously, you can go from being a traitor to being a son or daughter of the king. Now, there is a, an expiration date on this offer. One day, he will withdraw the terms of this offer, and he will evacuate his embassies in the resurrection. He will evacuate them, and every nation does that before they launch a war. And then he will launch a war against the wickedness and the evil of the earth, and he will cleanse it, not just because he's ticked off, but because he is attempting to cleanse the earth so that Jesus Christ may reign and rule. And then, once it's cleansed, Jesus Christ returns to do a little cleanup with the unholy trinity, and then he will reign forever and ever. And the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and forever. That is the biblical storyline. Now, Jesus goes through in Matthew 19 and picks several significant places in that storyline. Not all of it, but several significant places in that storyline. And he takes those places and applies them to social issues in Matthew chapter 19. In verses 1 through 12, he talks about identity, male and female, sex and divorce. In verses 13 to 15, he talks about children. Um, in verses 16 to 26, he talks about wealth. And verses 27 through 30, he talks about eternity. Now, here's the point I want to make to you. The only way to get the pressing social issues of the earth today right before God is to do what Jesus did and follow his example. To take the biblical story at significant points and apply that story to these particular social issues. In other words, we don't just figure this out after looking at the social scientific research. We don't figure this out by looking at polls and surveys and, uh, and opinions. We don't do this out just to please our, our friends and our family and others. We look first to the Lord our God because He has something to say about every one of these issues. Every one of these issues. Now let me say to you, this begins a series of messages on identity and sexuality and morality. And today I'm doing an introductory message that will give us a framework to think about these issues. Next Sunday I will preach on the largest sexual disaster in the history of the American people. That will come up Sunday. It will be the most unpleasant message you have ever heard. I can guarantee then the following Sunday, I'm going to preach on homosexuality and why the Bible teaches what it teaches on that issue. And then we'll look at the transgender issue. Then we will look at cohabitation. And then we'll look at some other issues. But what we will do is that we will take the biblical story and apply the biblical story to these issues each Sunday for the next several Sundays. And having said that, let me assure you that if you're struggling with one of these issues, I want you to immerse yourself into this church. I want you to immerse yourself into the life of this church. If you're struggling with same-sex attraction, we want you here. 
You don't need to look for truth to anyone else but the Lord your God. He's the one that is your hope. Now behave appropriately, but immerse yourself here. If you're struggling with same-sex attraction, we don't want any PDA here. If, if you're transgender, dress according to your anatomy, and let me tell you why. Number one, we got a bunch of little kids around here. And I promise the families of our church that this will be a safe place and that we will set an example for them. And so you're going to have to cooperate with us there. We've got a bunch of senior adults as well. And they are living their last years, and I want them to have some peace. And I want them to be guarded here. And then we've got a bunch of adults in the middle, most of whom have got ADD, and they never concentrate on Jesus if you showed up that way, okay? So... You go ahead and come. You're welcomed here. We want you here. Immerse yourself into the life of the church. Get to know Jesus. Get to know us. And we will walk with you as you overcome same-sex attraction, transgenderism, and the other issues, just as long as you behave appropriately. And most people wouldn't have a problem with that either. The second thing I want to say is, if you're struggling with these issues, it is probably because, in one way or another, to a severe degree or to a light degree, some adult has imposed himself or herself upon you. Instead of nurturing you and setting an example, someone has interfered with your development and your peace of mind as it imposed something on you. Uh, it may have been something as light as communicating some wrong information. Uh, and I don't think that's very light, but on what I'm about to talk about, comparatively, it is. And what I mean by that is, is that someone may have told you that you're gay if you're a boy and you play with dolls. Or you're gay if you um, were curious about other boys. That is nothing but outright demonic manipulation. That is simply not true. The vast majority of people, who men who've been interested in dolls and other boys, turn out to be completely straight. And it's just not right to do that to kids. So it may be anything from that. It could be something like abuse. It could be the breakup of your family, something as severe as that. But somehow or another, kids and teenagers and young adults that struggle with these issues mostly have been victims of adult misbehavior one way or another. So that leads me to say this. You're not weird. You're not. You're not strange and you're not a freak. You're just struggling, and you're hurting. And this is the best place to come. These are the best friends you've got. Now, we may end up saying a lot of things that the news media won't say and some of the social commentators won't say. Uh, we'll do so intelligently, but more than anything, we're submissive to Jesus Christ, and there ain't nobody that knows people like Jesus. And he's going to help you through. So we want you here. We want you to immerse yourself in the life of this church, and this is the best place to be. So my point is, if we follow Jesus with how he handled the story, we can, uh, we can get these things right. So if, the question is, if we follow Jesus in these areas, what will Jesus want of us? Well, the first thing is this. Jesus will lead us to think of the truths of Scripture. Let me ask you, how many of you remember the sitcom from the 80s, Different Strokes? How many of you remember that? Well, a lot more than I, I remember, but Tim never schedules me for a solo, so let me do the theme. Do you remember? It says, now the world, let's see, oh, I've forgotten the theme. Now the world doesn't move by the beat of just one drum. What might be right for you may not be right for some. It takes different strokes. It takes, help me, different strokes. It takes different strokes to move the world. Well, it's interesting. We saw, a, um, we saw an episode of that the other night, 
And they spent the whole show ex- uh, explaining how we don't live by different strokes. Because they had a moral standard that was an expectation of the children and they were not allowed to diverge from it. In other words, a lot of, it's popular to say we live by different strokes or what uh, is right for you may not be right for me and what's right for me may not be right for you. And then we spoil our case by expecting standards of one another. You see, uh, what I have found is that most people who say such things really want you to deal with them with a lot of flexibility, but when you cross them, they become terribly inflexible. Is oftentimes how they do it. And you have to understand, Jesus did not buy into the notion that everything is relative. Uh, In chapter 19, the Pharisees in verse 3 come to ask him about divorce. And here's how Jesus answers them in verse 4. He answered and said to them, Have you not read? Have you not read? Now, what is Jesus referring to here when he says, have you not read? Well, let's read a little bit more. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So, have you not read? What is Jesus referring to? You read a book. What book is he referring to? The Old Testament. And then he talks about at the beginning he made them. So, what book of the Old Testament? Genesis. And what chapter? Chapter 1. So when Jesus deals with this social issue, he goes back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, and he expects them to embrace it. He expects them to follow it. He expects them to believe the Word of God and the truths of Scripture. So Jesus believed the Scripture, and he expected others to embrace it. Now in his ministry that we have recorded, and we don't have everything recorded, by the way. John makes that clear in John 21. But what we do have about Jesus' life and ministry is that he quoted the Old Testament 78 times. And he called the Old Testament the Scriptures, the Word of God, and the wisdom of God is what he did. And look a few pages back in Matthew chapter 5. Just turn a few pages back in your Bible at Matthew chapter 5 and look what he said in verse number 17. Verse number 17, look how intense he was with the Old Testament. He said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, the first five books of the Old Testament and everything else. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, if that's how Jesus approached the Old Testament, why isn't that good enough for everyone else? For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot the smallest Hebrew punctuation point, or tittle, the smallest point of a, of a letter, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus said about the Old Testament. He had an intense reverence and faith and trust and belief in the Old Testament. And when he dealt with this social issue of marriage and divorce, he pointed back to Genesis chapter 1. To be like Jesus means we believe and embrace the Scripture just like Jesus did. It is impossible to reject the Old Testament, even Genesis 1, and be like Jesus. To be like Jesus, we have got to embrace the totality of the Word of God. So this overthrows the notion that all things are relative. If Scripture was good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. 
And so we're a Bible-preaching and we're a Bible-teaching church. That's why on Wednesday nights in uh, September, we'll start a series on the book of Revelation. We hope you'll sign up and be there for it. And then October 22nd, Bailey Smith will be here to declare the gospel to our non-Christian friends on Sunday morning and Sunday night, and we'll want you here. So when making decisions about social issues, the first question we ask is, we do like Jesus did, what does the Bible say? The second item. Jesus leads us not only to think about the truths of Scripture, but also the realism of creation. There is the notion that there are no boundaries on sexual behavior except for personal desire. And whatever you want to do, the rule should be that you're free to do it. And that somehow that is righteous, true, and good always at all times. And it's wrong to stand in the way of that, is the notion. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus overthrows that by continuing in verse 4 and 5 of Matthew 19. Look what he said. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now, talking about these issues, Jesus could have gone to Genesis 39 with Joseph and how he dealt with these issues. He could have gone to Abraham. Anywhere from Genesis 12 to Genesis 39, he could have camped. But instead, Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. And he says here, he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. So he goes back to the beginning and talks about how God made them. Then he goes to Genesis 2 in the creation account, and the creation of Eve, and when he performed the first wedding ceremony between Adam and Eve, and says in verse 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he took Genesis 1 and the creation, and Genesis 2, the creation of marriage, and applied it to these Issues. Jesus upheld creation as a model for human living. And when we deal with creation, this is so important. When we're dealing with creation, we're dealing with what is real. We're dealing with what is. We're not dealing merely with human imaginations or social speculation. We're dealing with what is real. And let me illustrate what I mean by that. Let's imagine that you've got a group that begins to demand respect and civil rights because they want to fly without airplanes or wings. And, and we kind of object. And we say, wait a minute, you can't do that. And they call us, they say we're flyophobia. Okay? And they get up on tall buildings and they jump. And they demand and insist that they have the complete, unmitigated, unbridled freedom to fly anywhere they want to fly. Well, what's the problem with that? There's just one problem. Gravity. God has created the heavens and the earth with gravity. It's a remarkable thing. It keeps our feet planted on the earth instead of floating around outer space. It keeps the planets rotating around the sun at a proper distance. It keeps the planets away from each other so they don't collide. It is a remarkable thing. If we speed up as an earth any more than what we're going now, we'll spin out of control and run out of orbit. If we slow down, we get pulled in by the gravitational force of the sun and we fry. It's a remarkable thing, this gravity thing, and it, is, it applies to not only cosmological relationships, but it applies also to personal living. You see, you can claim to want to fly and claim to fly and the freedom to fly all you want to, but creation isn't going to cooperate with you. It will not. Ladies and gentlemen, 
any kind of sexual activity other than a man and woman married to each other is destructive to the human body. All you have to do is put in some search terms into the Center for Disease Control website, and you'll find that to be true. As wildly politically correct as that group is, it still brings forward, it can't help but bring forward the scientific research on same-sex behavior, uh, transgenderism, and a variety of other things. So the truth is, creation will not cooperate. And, and, and I want to be as delicate as I can be here, but I want to tell you why if your mind drifts and you start thinking about some of these issues and about issues of sexuality, eventually your mind is going to say, yuck. That's disgusting. That means when you get to that point that you have some moral health. Now, let me clarify here. There is some behavior that is disgusting. There are no people who are disgusting. We've got to be very careful to differentiate. Our world confuses that. If you're engaged in that kind of behavior, I want you to hear me clearly. We don't think you're disgusting. We only think the behavior is, and thank God Jesus can set you free from that. But the reason you have the, what we call the yuck factor going on is that you have respect for creation. That's what creation teaches us. In other words, these are obvious things, and a nation is sick when it cannot see the obvious. It's obvious. Men were made for some behaviors and not others. Women were made for some behaviors and not others. We were not created by God to engage in yucky behavior. Now again, let me clarify. If you're engaged in any of these kinds of behaviors, God loves you and you're not yucky. That's not it at all. You're cherished. You're beloved. By, by engaging in that behavior, though, you're living below where God designed you to live. Now, I've heard some researchers say, well, even animals engage in homosexual relationships. And I'm thinking, good grief, our nation's gone from exalting Jesus as a model to the animals. What? That is not how God designed it. And it is obvious when you look at creation. And that's precisely what Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 19. So we think about the realism of creation. So the first question we ask is, like Jesus, we ask the question, what does the Bible say? And then we ask, what happens in creation with this behavior? But there's a third thing as well. And that is, Jesus leads us to think of the welfare of children. Now, there are some who believe that the goal of my life is to satisfy my desires and my dreams and to become everything I feel like I should become even at the expense of my children and my family, and that should not get in the way. That's been with us at least since the 70s, and there's a whole um, lengthy psychological and philosophical background of that that I won't bore you with. But Jesus has a different view. Look at Matthew chapter 19, and I don't find it a surprise that after talking about marriage and family, sexuality and identity in Matthew 19 verses 1 through 12, look how Jesus picks up the subject in verse number 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. 
for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. So Jesus embraced the children. Now, he spoke about children in the previous chapter. Turn back a page to Matthew 18, the previous chapter, and look at verses 6 through 9. Look at this great and intense warning he gave about mistreating children. He said, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, Cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Jesus said it would be preferable for you to engage in amputation or mutilation or drowning than to get in the way of a child finding him and their total well-being. Jesus put a high premium on the welfare of children. Now, in some environments, what I'm about to say would be terribly controversial. But it's rather interesting. Two generations of research substantiate the point. And that's unusual in some of the social scientific research because usually the new generation attempts to overthrow what the previous generation came up with, but that has not happened with this particular research. There are even gay researchers that agree with this point, and here is the point. The best environment for children is in a home with mom and dad. Ryan Anderson says this, in fact, in a uh, statement that he made. The scientifically rigorous studies of same-sex parenting all conclude that as a rule, the best place for children is in the home of their married mother and father. This sums up 40 years of robust social scientific evidence. In the next slide. We'll get to it one day. But the point is, is that the research is profoundly consistent. Now, they spend a lot of money on this research, and they pay some high-dollared researchers to take care of that. I could have gone to the dollar store and just given them a Bible, a $1 Bible, and saved them a whole lot of money. The very best environment for children happens to be in a home with a mother and daddy. And by the way, children don't need two parents. They need a mother and daddy. Two mothers, two fathers don't qualify. They need a mother and a daddy. So Jesus here intentionally says, let's think about the kids when we make these decisions. Well, the fourth thing is this. Jesus leads us to think of the commandments of God. Now, Jesus in Matthew 19 paints a wonderful and generous portrait of God in Matthew chapter 19. In verse number 13, we find that when God came to the earth, he liked to embrace children. It says, then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. And so that is what God does when He comes to the earth and meets children. Verse 17, Jesus implies that God is good when He says no one's good but God. So God is good. God is very kind. In verse 26, He adds to the portrait of God. He said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
So God is powerful and He is greater than any obstacle any of us face. Then in verse number 29, He's very generous. He says, And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. This is the portrait of God in Matthew chapter 19, and this is the God who issues commands. When Jesus was asked about eternal life, he responded in verses 13, and, uh, or excuse me, he responded in verse 17 by pointing to the commandments. He said in verse 18, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this fellow thought that he had it all together, and Jesus pointed really back to the first command, no other gods before me. And this young man had a problem with that because Jesus said, come follow me and sell all that you have. He got to the problem of the man's heart with the commands of God. In other words, God's commands are a shortcut to wisdom in the area of identity, morality, and sexuality. May I suggest to you, just, un- just understand and trust God and do what he says. And when he commands that sexuality be between a man and a woman, married to one another, and limited there, just trust him and do what he says. He's good. He's kind. He is far more worthy than the politically correct crowd or the sexually charged crowd to set standards for human behavior. He's good, kind, and generous. Now, some cranky person, and one day I'm going to introduce you to a cranky person, but um, a cranky person would stand and say, hold on just a minute. Jesus never prohibited homosexuality or transgender sex change operations. Well, he never, he never prohibited puppy torture either. He never, he never prohibited wife beating. Are you telling me that he's in favor of these things? Do you really want me to believe he's for puppy torture? Probably cat torture, but uh, you want, want me to believe he is for puppy torture? Do you want me to believe that because he never addressed wife beating, he's for wife beating or husband beating? Is he, is he really for that? Or are we to conclude that? It just wasn't relevant in his day. That's not what they did. And so he didn't address it. Jesus is relevant and he addresses relevant issues. Now, I would argue that Jesus actually did prohibit homosexual behavior and transgender confusion with the text we read in Matthew 5. He said, do not make less of the commands of the Old Testament. If you do, there's some severe consequences to that. So he endorsed the Old Testament moral vision. But the problem that you're running into by saying Jesus never commanded anything against homosexual behavior or transgender confusion, uh, you're you're committing uh, the argument of silence. In other words, where he was silent, he was in favor of something. Well, how do you know that? There's nothing about Jesus that would lead us to that conclusion. So what he does lead us to do is pay careful attention to the commands of God. And to be Christ-like then is to treasure these commands. And then Jesus leads us to think of the day of judgment. Now there is a notion, and has been some time, that really got cranked up among the elites back in the 30s, and it is very powerful, much more powerful in this day. And that is that God should not interfere with common life. God should not be honored or acknowledged or obeyed in public life. That he should have nothing to do with our government. He should not uh, have anything to do with our expectations of one another. If you want to worship God in the privacy of your home or your worship center, fine, but don't communicate it out into the world. And the slippery language that they will use for that is that they will shift 
from freedom of religion to freedom of worship. And that's a signal. That every time they're shifting from us living our religious life publicly to confining it to the worship center or to our home, and we'll not have that. We're Americans, and more than that, we're Christians. And so um, that's the slippery language. It is the myth of secularism. Now, I say the myth of secularism because secularism is really an impossibility. It is impossible to be really secular. Now, some people live like it's true, but secularism is impossible because there's some things you can't change. One thing you cannot change is that you cannot change that God created you. That will never, ever change. And He has expectations of you. You can't change that. You cannot change His providential care of you. God watches over you. That's why you're breathing. That's why you're still living. That's why you woke up this morning. You can't change that. God insists on watching over you. And then, one day, He's going to bring the kingdom, whether anyone likes it or not. It's going to be a big shock to the secularist, but Jesus is coming back. And all that you see in Revelation is going to come about. And we've got that guarantee because of the cross and resurrection. That was the first installment of the book of Revelation, was the cross and the resurrection. But then finally... And this is what Jesus refers to beginning in verse 27. There will be a day of judgment. Every one of us has an appointment with God where we've got to give an account of what we did with Jesus Christ. You can't escape that. That appointment is on God's calendar and He's not going to change it. It will happen immediately after death. And the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die and after this comes the judgment. You can't change that. It is impossible then to be secular. You can live in an illusion. You can live in a fantasy. Um, there's probably some medication for that. Jesus is the best answer. But it is impossible to be secular. Now, Jesus picks up on this at the end of verse number 19. Look what he says. Then Peter answered and said to him, Well, see, Lord, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And Jesus says in verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you that in the re-Genesis, when I repeat Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden, which is found in the last two chapters of the Bible, in the re-Genesis, the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then He expands it from them to everyone who has followed Him. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus describes two realities about judgment. Judgment day is coming and no one can change it. It doesn't change. And that day has two possibilities to every human being. The type of day that it is. It can be a happy day, as Jesus indicates in verse 27, 28, and 29. Or it can be a horrible day, which he implies in verse number 30. In other words, if we have followed Christ, if we've trusted Him as Lord and Savior, and we have borne fruit to that saving faith by following Him, it's going to be a great day. And you know something? I learned this when I was a very young man. It was one of the motivating factors for going into ministry. And every day of my life, I've been trying to make the judgment day a happy day for other people. 
That's why I preach Jesus, and I'm not going to bend up, shut up, back up, or clam up until I'm taken up when he comes to get me. Okay? So my goal in my heart, and I know this is where you are too, is to make that day a happy day for as much of the world as I possibly can. But it can be a horrible day implied by verse number 30. There's some people that are strutting around today, blasting the people of God, mocking the Bible, scorning the name of Jesus, who are first in their realms of life. They are first in the centers of power. They're the first called by CNN or Fox News to give a hateful opinion about the things of God. They're first. And Jesus said, if they don't repent, they're going to be last. There's a judgment day coming. Did you know one-third of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are consumed with the fury and the wrath of God and the sinfulness of human beings? One-third. One-third of the Gospels are. Jesus was the original hellfire brimstone preacher. He was. The old hymn says there's a great day coming. A great day coming. A great day coming by and by. When sinners shall be separated right and left. Are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for that day to come? And my first pastor, we had a sweet lady by the name of Virginia Tedder, whose um, sweet mother passed away. And as her life was ebbing away in the emergency room of the Williamsburg County Hospital in South Carolina, she sang that song. And it echoed through the emergency room to nurses, doctors, and attendants who were looking after her needs. She sang it as a warning to all those around because she had trusted Christ as Lord and Savior and had proven it by how she lived her walk in faith. Listen, you need to understand something. Our place in life is to make that day that's unavoidable on God's calendar, on yours, we must face a happy day, not a horrible day. And you've got to be very, very, very careful that you do not have dangerous, misguided sympathy for those who are struggling with these issues. You've got to be extremely careful. Do you know what I mean? You start sympathizing with people who are struggling with same-sex attraction, and you start approving of their behavior, and you start approving of the behavior of those who are struggling with transgender difficulties, and you tell them that that behavior is okay, you have just set them up for a horrible day before God. What are you doing? Knock it off. If you have any milk of human kindness or any love for people who are struggling, get into the midst of the struggle with them and challenge the behavior. Don't accept the behavior. Accept the person, but not the behavior. My grandfather, at the end of his life, struggled with heart difficulties. He um, had struggled powerfully from the time he was 50, 15 to 51 with alcohol. And he and my grandmother were married and divorced from each other, married four times to each other, divorced three times over it. And finally, she got him to Jesus in 1964. He gave his heart and life to Jesus, and I mean God cleaned him up and broke the bonds 
of alcoholism in his life. And this intensely introverted man spoke in large gatherings and assemblies all over Texas telling people what Jesus had done and the value and the wisdom of the 12-step program that he had been introduced in 1964. And back in that day, you didn't acknowledge a higher power or God, you acknowledged Jesus. That program has morphed and their success rate has plummeted since they uh, began to allow merely for a higher power. But in any case, that's what my grandfather did. And my grandfather spent the last 22 years of his life making up for the difficulty he caused my grandmother the previous 27. Well, he developed heart difficulties, and that was heartbreaking because they had had a good 20 years before this happened. And the doctor told him, you, you, um, you eat right, you work hard, you don't have any bad habits except smoking. You've got to give it up or you're going to die. If you will give it up, you can add some time to your life. And he really struggled with that. He really did. And I'll never forget the day, and it bothered me intensely, when I saw family members go around my grandmother. My grandmother had worked hard to get him to where he was in life. And she was guarded intensely to make sure he didn't smoke anymore. But there were some family members that would go around her and give him cigarettes. Because he was going through withdrawals and it was tough. And they had some sympathy for the difficult condition he was in with these nicotine withdrawals and this addiction to tobacco. And so with their, out of their sympathy, they went around my grandmother and gave him cigarettes to smoke. And he died at age 73. It horrified me as a child to see other adults do that to my grandfather. They had misplaced sympathy. And I'm going to tell you, you listen to me. You go ahead and accept and love those who are struggling with same-sex attraction. You love them like Jesus did. You embrace and love those that are struggling with this transgender confusion. Some adult is probably imposed upon them along the way. You go ahead and do that. But don't you ever sneak around behind God's back and tell them that behavior is okay. Do not do that. That's like feeding a heart patient cigarettes. And it's worse because there is a judgment day coming. And if our lives have been filthy and immoral before God, there is no hope of entering the kingdom of heaven until we repent and place faith in Jesus, the kind of faith that changes our lives and cleanses us from sexual immorality. There's no hope otherwise. Now let me ask you this question. What about you? We're not just talking about people out there. In a crowd this size, there's maybe some folks here struggling with that. You're welcomed here. We want you here. Okay? But what about you? There is a date on your calendar and on God's when you've got to stand before Him. Let, let's imagine that today the worst thing in the world were to happen to you and your heart was to stop beating and you were to stand before God and God was to say to you, I was expecting you today. Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Can I tell you what 90% of Americans would say? They would give the most absolute disastrous answer. They would say, well, um, I trust Jesus and I treat my neighbor right. Or I obey the Ten Commandments, which is usually an exaggeration. Or um, I practice the golden rule. 
In other words, in fact, most of them wouldn't even mention Jesus. They would start with their own works and virtue. 90% of people I talk to do. Even though the Bible says, and help me with this, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's what they're doing. They're boasting about their works. All that they've done. You see, they put their hope in themselves. And, of course, it's all exaggerated. Then there are some that are a little bit more aware that add to Jesus a few other things, and the whole book of Romans and Galatians were written to obliterate that idea. The only hope that we have of ever being accepted by God in this life and the next is faith and trust in the death and resurrection of Christ, and there's no other plan. God has no other plan to getting into favor with Him and getting right with Him than trusting the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it is the kind of faith that cleanses us and changes our lives. All of our struggles don't go away, but there is a marked difference in the heart and life. And He invites you to come to that today. And I want to take a moment to pray with you and ask God to bless you in that way. Would you stand with me real quickly, please? Father, I thank You for the good news of the Gospel. And I pray for friends today that they would find true peace, true life in the Lord Jesus. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work for the interest of repentance and faith in Christ. I pray that no one would be arrogant or exaggerate their virtue, but would come to Jesus Christ. And God, I want to pray and ask that you would make this a place and this a church where people who are struggling with same-sex attraction, where people who are struggling with transgender confusion, some that are struggling with just old-fashioned sexual immorality would be able to come and find the sweetness and mercy and tenderness of Jesus, be radically transformed, and communicate to others struggling with that that there is hope and life in Jesus Christ. Oh God, would you make that happen and would you make it happen today? Now we're going to sing a song and as we sing, why don't you step out from where you are and come? Our staff will be here. Now if you do come, we're not going to assume that you're struggling with any of the issues that we dealt with today, okay? Don't worry about that. People come for reasons unrelated to the sermon. Maybe you've been thinking and praying about it. Maybe the Lord spoke to your heart this past week. Maybe you read something in the Bible totally unrelated to these issues today. You go ahead and come. But Tim's going to lead us to sing after I finish my prayer. Staff will be here, and we're going to ask you to come, all right? Father, do a neat work today, and I pray that we will, when the service is done, that we will have accomplished all that you 